Amen. Well, if you'll join me in turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Uh, Luke 23, we'll be picking up there in verse 26. If you've been with us, you know that we just concluded last Lord's Day our study through the book of Ruth. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to start walking through the book of Hebrews together. But I thought it'd be fitting during this time of the year when so many turn towards the, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as we prepare next Lord's Day to celebrate that resurrection day. I thought it'd be fitting for us to turn to Luke's Gospel and consider the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so today, we'll be looking at Luke 23, verses 26 through 49. And then next week, we'll pick up where we leave off and look at the resurrection of Jesus. And so out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this text for us this Lord's Day. We come to the part in Luke where Jesus has been tried. He's appeared before Pilate and Herod. And now he is being led away to the crucifixion. And this is what God's inspired word tells us. Luke 23, beginning there in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Siren who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things to the wood that is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Him, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals one to his right and one to his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged there railed against him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light had failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, 
Into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. If you will, pray with me. Father, as we consider the events that led up to the crucifixion and the crucifixion itself, I pray that You would do a work that only You can do, Father. That You might help us to understand the truths of the Gospel, to believe those, to believe those truths, and Lord, to repent in the name of Jesus and put our full faith and trust in Him. We ask that You would do this work now. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we have walked through so much of the Old Testament together, we have seen how God's people throughout generations were looking for the long-awaited Messiah. And we see in the triumphal entry how when Jesus comes there into Jerusalem, how many hail Him as the long-awaited Messiah. And yet, things turn so quickly. They wanted a political ruler. They wanted someone who would overthrow the Roman authorities. And when that was not what Jesus did, there were many who did not believe He was the Messiah and turned their attention to other places. In fact, it was not long after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that a man named Simon bar Kosova claimed to be the long-awaited Messiah. The city of Jerusalem gathered around Him. They sang His praises as the star of Jacob. It seemed that now the Messiah had come as He promised that He would be the one to overthrow the Roman authorities. And that's exactly what He did in 132 A.D. He captured Jerusalem from the Romans and He ruled that independent state for two and a half years until there was another battle with Rome. And in this one, He lost in 135 A.D., he was defeated, he was executed, and he was buried. 300 years later, there would be another who would claim to be the Messiah. Now, this one was born Fiscus of Crete, but he soon took the name Moses. He said, like the biblical Moses, that he was the one who would lead the people into the promised land. In fact, he promised his followers that if they would follow him, that he too, like the biblical Moses, would part the waters, that they would walk through the sea, and that God would give them safe entry into the land of promise where they would rule. Many of his followers believed this promise, and so they followed him one day to the side of a cliff. Moses of Crete commanded his followers then to leap off that cliff and to go through the waters that God would safely take them through. Many of them died as they were crushed on the rocks. Others were drowned. Moses of Crete was never heard from again. He would not be the last though. 1,200 years later, there would be a, a rabbi named Sabbathai Zevi who would also claim to be a Messiah and he would lead a Messianic movement through which thousands of Jews would believe that he was indeed the promised one. In 1666, he was captured and imprisoned by the sultan of modern-day Turkey. He was told that if he would confess that Islam was the one true religion, and he would recant his faith 
and the God of Judaism that his life would be spared. Very thing. He converted to Islam. He led many of his followers to do that. He died in nineteen nine, or excuse me, in sixteen seventy six. And then, in more recent days, three hundred years later, there's a man known as the Rabbi. He was Menachem Shearson. He was a rabbi that many in our day believe to be the long-awaited Messiah. In fact, it's believed that as many as 300,000 Jews believe He was the Messiah. He was the one who would set the people free. They called Him the rabbi. They said Moses was the first redeemer. The rabbi is the last redeemer. And even on his deathbed as he was dying, paralyzed by a series of strokes, his followers believed that he would recover, that he would come to Israel, and that he would rebuild the temple. He died in 1994. These men are part of a long list of so-called messiahs, and yet every single one of them failed to do what Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, did. They failed to conquer death. As we read this account in Luke of Jesus on His way to the cross, we are reminded that the cross did not have the final word. We are reminded that Jesus indeed conquered sin and death. That He died on the cross, was placed in the tomb, and God resurrected Him from the dead on the third day. We're reminded that He stands out in history far above all these other so-called messiahs and that people are still fascinated with Jesus today. Like you can go to your supermarket aisle today and you'll likely see on the cover of one or two news magazines some type of depiction of Jesus. You can go to the bookstore and you'll find there are still best-selling books written about Jesus. You can turn on your television and you'll find new miniseries being written and produced about the life of Jesus and the events surrounding Jesus. You can see in our movie theaters, new movies coming out even now depicting events surrounding the life of Jesus. And yet, what so often these magazine covers and these books and these movies and miniseries, what they so often get wrong is who the biblical Jesus really is. And if we're not careful, as the church of Jesus Christ today, we will be more informed by the culture and a false narrative of Christ than we will be about what the biblical text actually tells us about Jesus. And so it's important that we take time to walk through passages like Luke 23. Passages which I hope are familiar to all of us that we might be reminded of what the culture so often misses. About who this Jesus really is. And why indeed He went to that cross and died. And so we're going to consider a series of reminders from this text today as we prepare to culminate our time at the Lord's table together. I'll mention again to you now that the Lord's table today, this is for anyone here who is a professing follower of Jesus Christ. If you have repented of your sin, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, if you've made a public profession of that faith, then we invite you to join the table. And that will be our, our response at the end of our time. But for now, let's prepare for it by walking through this passage together. So we'll pick up there in verse 26 of chapter 23. And that first reminder there in your outline. Luke wants to make it clear that Jesus was sinless. Jesus was sinless. He was, He is, He will always be without sin. 
Notice the event here as Jesus is being led away. Verse 26, as He's being led away, they seized one Simon of Siren who was coming in from the country. They laid on Him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And we see that in this, this spectacle of what's taking place, that as this mob was forming and following Jesus out to Calvary, there were others who were coming into the city, Simon being one of them. And the text tells us that they took the cross off Jesus. They put it on Simon. This would have been the cross beam that convicted criminals would carry to the site of their crucifixion. There there would be some type of stake or beam likely already in the ground or ready to be placed in the ground. They would place that cross beam on it forming a cross. That the criminal would carry their cross beam as an admission of guilt. As a reminder of the crime that they had committed and were guilty of and were now confessing to on their way to their crucifixion site. But we know from Luke's Gospel as well as Matthew and Mark's Gospel that Jesus did not carry His own cross. That Simon was the one that carried it for Him. And oftentimes, how this is depicted, how we kind of picture this is that Jesus was so exhausted, that He was so battered, that He was so beaten from the events leading up to this that He physically could not carry the cross. Normally in depictions, there's, there's kind of this picture of Simon out of compassion and mercy picking up the cross from the, the battered Jesus who's fatigued and, and just can't carry it any farther. And that very well may have been the case. But if you notice in the Gospels, they, they don't portray Jesus this way. Luke here doesn't say anything to us about Christ's inability to carry the cross. In fact, we get some suggestions as to what may have been the motivation here when we consider how it was Simon came into this scene. In Matthew and Mark's Gospel, it says that he was compelled. That word means that he was forced into duty. It's a word like we might use in our common vernacular to think of someone drafted into military service. This was not Simon's choice. This was no act of compassion or mercy on His behalf. He is literally forced to pick up this cross and carry it behind Jesus. Luke tells us here that He was seized. Now again, that sense of he, he was forced by the guards. Now if you're familiar with the Gospel narratives, you know that these guards were not ones who had shown Jesus any mercy or compassion up to this point. In fact, they had greatly mocked Jesus. They had scoffed at Jesus. They had made a crown of thorns. And they had sunk it into His flesh on His head. They had put a robe on Him. And they had, out of mockery, held Him as a king. Others, the Gospels tell us, would blindfold Jesus, Jesus and would beat Him. And as they do, they would mock Him as a prophet. And they would say, prophet, tell us who it is who's beating you. That they mocked Him as a king. They scoffed at Him as a prophet. And so I think perhaps what Luke is showing to us here is this is continued mockery. And these guards were likely familiar through the trial of Jesus, through the accusations thrown at Him of many of the things He'd said, including in Luke 9.23 where it's recorded. That he said, if you wanted to come after him, anyone who wants to come after me, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And so perhaps at a further spectacle and mockery now, these guards are remembering these words of Christ and saying, oh, is this the one that you're going to follow? Is this how you want followers, Jesus? 
We'll just show you what it looks like for someone to take up a cross and follow you. And like the others, they were just likely mocking Jesus. But, but for whatever the reason was, whatever the motivation behind their actions were, that this was part, I believe, of God's providential, sovereign plan. Because you see, in, in Jesus' day, to carry that crossbeam, that was an admission of guilt. That that was a picture of guilt. And what do we see here? We see Jesus, who is innocent, doesn't carry His cross. We see Jesus on display before this mob, before this mockery, and we see presented before them the innocent Son of God. We see that not just here, we see it throughout Luke's account of the crucifixion. Notice in verse 41, the criminal declares that Christ is innocent. Verse 47, after Jesus dies on the cross, the centurion declares certainly this man was innocent. Leading up to this point, both Herod and Pilate, that they found no guilt in him. And we don't just see this declaration of innocence in Luke's Gospel. We see it throughout the Scripture. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 14 tells us, or excuse me, Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was the great high priest who was without sin. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus knew no sin. But Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter 2.22. He says Jesus committed no sin. There was no deceit found in Him. 1 John 3.5 says in Him there was no sin. And we see this throughout the Scripture. That Jesus is the One who was without sin sin and that is so important because it presents to us this great contrast at the crucifixion of he who knew no sin and was innocent and the rest of us who are sinners and are not innocent point two man is sinful and deserves god's judgment man is sinful and deserves god's judgment Luke is showing us here the innocence of Jesus and He's showing us the guilt of man and how we deserve the judgment of God. Notice there in verse 27, this crowd is following Jesus. Luke notes it includes women who were mourning and they were lamenting for Him. That they are crying out. For anyone else, this would be an opportunity for self-pity. This would be an opportunity to listen to the mourners and the grievers and to say, woe, woe is me, but not Christ. Notice what he says there in verse 28. He turns to those women and says, Weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, why would Jesus say this? Especially to those who are are weeping for him, showing compassion for him. What is he saying to them? Well, continue on. Verse 29, Jesus tells them, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Now, if you've been following with us in our studies, particularly the Old Testament, you know that, that, that barrenness in the Old Testament was a curse. It was something looked down on. It, people who were barren were considered to be cursed by God, not, not blessed by God. When we just went through our study of Ruth, and you recall there in the beginning of Ruth's story, we find here barren. And that's an issue. And then we find blessing when God gives her and Boaz a child. That's the blessing. And yet notice what Jesus says here. He reverses this. He says when judgment comes, 
in those last days, the intensity of God's wrath will be so great that it will be the most vulnerable among you who will weep greatly. And you'll wish that you were never pregnant. You'll wish you never had a child. You'll wish that you were barren in those days. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues to talk about the judgment of God. He says there in verse 30, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and the hills cover us. Jesus here is quoting from the prophet Hosea in Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, where people were crying out for God's mercy under judgment. They were so under the wrath of God and the hand of God that their cry and their misery was, God, bring a mountain to fall on us. Put us out of our misery, God. And Jesus says God's wrath will be so intense that will be the cry. And then He says in verse 31 something that it might seem a bit confusing to us. Perhaps we just kind of glaze over it. So for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus, I believe, is using a popular proverb of His day, one we can understand when we consider the context. You think of this way. Uh, many of you may have some type of a fire pit or, or wood pile or Maybe you go camping and you build a little fire there from time to time. Well, imagine that's the scenario. You're, you're going to build a fire and, and you've got a stack of wood that's been sitting there for weeks, perhaps months, and it's, it's just dried out. And then you've got a stack of wood that's freshly cut lumber. You, you just cut down this tree. It, it is green. Well, which one of those is going to start the fire? The, the dry wood. You're not going to start a fire with green wood. That's not how you start a fire. In fact, you're going to have a hard time burning that green wood. But if you have dry wood that's really dried out and brittle, that will that'll just be engulfed by the flames quickly. So how does that relate to what Jesus says? Well, I believe what Jesus is saying here is that, that He's the green wood. <laughs> that, that He's innocent. That He is undeserving of the wrath of God. And if this is what it looks like for the wrath of God to be poured out on the innocent, imagine what it will be when the wrath of God is poured out on the wicked. Imagine what it will be when those wicked, the dry wood, are under the due penalty for their sin. Jesus is essentially saying if this is how they treat the innocent, if God did not spare His own Son who was innocent, how much more would His wrath be on those who are guilty? And so in Luke's Gospel, in this passage, there are two things that are very clear. One is that Jesus is innocent. The second is that we are not. And Jesus' response here to these women gives us a much-needed reminder today that as sinners, as those who are not innocent, we too deserve the wrath of God. Romans 3.23, we read, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That verse reminds us that we are all sinners. And that's a biblical truth that I think many in our culture, in some way, shape, or form, that they tend to understand at least in part. And so that's why when you encounter people, most will not say to you, oh, I'm a perfect person. <laughs> I've never done anything wrong. Never once in my whole life. I've, I've always been perfect. Now what do people tend to say? Well, nobody's perfect. 
Now, everybody messes up. I mean, he's up a little bit, folks. I mean, I mean, there's, there's, there's nobody perfect. He, he who's without sin casts the first stone. Isn't that what Jesus said? And so oftentimes, this is almost a, a shelter for the guilty to not feel very guilty because they're comparing themselves with everybody else. Well, everybody sinned. But they're getting it in part. But then the Gospels also tell us, Romans 6.23, that the, the wages of sin is death. And that's not something that the culture is quick to affirm. In fact, when we start talking about God's judgment, people are quick to say, well, that's, the, whoa, that's, that's not the God I believe in. The God I believe in wouldn't do those things. No, my God I believe in, my, my God is love. Now, I'm sure there's a hell and there's people down there like Hitler and Charles Manson, but not my grandma. She was a wonderful woman. Now, not my cousin, not my aunt, my uncle, not my kids, not the people I know, not, not the guy I worked with at the factory. I, I know he never went to church. I know he really wasn't really a, a person of faith. But man, he gave this shirt off his back. When we start talking about the wages of sin is death and, and deserving the wrath of God, and, and, and people recoil from that. And yet we see this reminder here from Jesus Christ on the way to the cross that the wages of sin indeed is death and that we are deserving of God's wrath, and that there will be a day when the wrath of God is poured out, when people are literally crying out to God, God, would You collapse an avalanche on me to put me out of my misery? But the biblical truth is, there's no extinguishing God's wrath. They will be under it for all eternity. That there is no mountain that can fall on them that they will hide them from the wrath of God. And yet we are reminded here that there is a mountain on which Jesus would take the wrath of God. That He would stand in our place. And He would take what you and I rightly deserve. That brings us to the next point there in your outline. Number three, this reminder we need from this text that Jesus died for our sin. Luke tells us that Jesus... is led up the mountain along with those criminals to a place called the Skull. That's where He'll be crucified. He in the middle, a criminal on either side. There at the crucifixion, we read that the people continue to scoff at Jesus. They continue to mock Jesus. Verse 35, the rulers, they yell out to Him, well, He saved other people. Why can't He save Himself? The soldiers, verse 37, if you're the King of the Jews, remember they've adorned Him, this crown of thorns. At one point, they put a robe on him. They, they bowed down before him. Well, yeah, if you're really the king, save yourself, king. And even one of the criminals, verse 39 tells us, he, he yells out to Jesus, say, save yourself if you're who you say you are. Oh, and by the way, while you're at it, why, why don't you save us too? And yet, Jesus doesn't save Himself. The one who had all power and all authority to save doesn't save himself. Why? Because his mission was to save others. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul reminds us again, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We have this beautiful exchange that takes place on the cross where, where Jesus, who knew no sin, was fully innocent, deserving of no punishment, takes on God's full wrath in our place as a substitute. And if we will repent and trust in Him, we receive the righteousness of Christ which we don't deserve. He takes what, what we deserve and He didn't. He gives us what He did deserve and earned His righteousness, that which we do not deserve and could never earn. This is the, the picture of the cross. This is why Jesus died. I've had the opportunity, literally at this point, thousands of times, to, to talk to people about the Gospel and have conversations with them about the Gospel all over the world. And oftentimes when I'm walking through the Gospel and I, I get to the point where we're talking about the death of Christ. I'll, I'll often ask the question of that person I'm speaking with, why was the death of Christ necessary? And almost every person, without hesitation, their first response is, well, because, because, because you know, God was, God was showing us how much He loved us. And, and, and you can get there, in John chapter 3, God so loved the world, He gave His Son. You can get there, but, but, but what's so often absent in their answers is anything to do with the fact that we deserve death. And that Jesus died in our place. And that His was the substitutionary atonement. That, that He took what we deserved on the cross. Again, it's because so many, they don't think they deserve that. They ignore what the Scripture teaches about sin and the consequence of sin. And yet we see Jesus doing that which God ordained Him to do. He dies in our place. Why? Because He came to seek and save the lost. Luke here reminds us of what it is that John the Baptist was proclaiming that day he saw Jesus coming as he was calling people to repentance and he was baptizing them there in the waters. John called out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I fear that in the church today this has become so repetitive that we, we kind of miss it. That, that somehow we've become callous to it. That the gravity, that the enormity of the biblical truth that Christ died for us. He died in our place. That God gave His Son, His only Son, who was perfect, without blemish, to die for you and I in the moment that we were cursing Him. Knowing our sin as it's laid out in all eternity before Him. He chose for Jesus to die in our place. Do you understand the depth of that truth? I have four children. And I love them all. And I like to tease at times. You know, who do you love more? Whoever will do the dishes tonight, that's who I love more. But no, I love them all greatly. And I know most of you in this room very well. I, I love you. It's a pleasure to be your pastor. 
But if we're put in a situation where it's you or one of my kids, I'll preach your funeral. And, and that's the same for you, I'm sure. Even the miserable ones. <laughs> God gave His Son. Jesus died in our place. And what we see here in this Gospel account is that this sacrifice is being paid so that ultimately now we might have the opportunity to live. That brings us to that fourth point there in your outline. Because Jesus died, we can live. Notice this interaction we see before the death of Christ there on the cross that there's this interaction with Jesus and one of the criminals. Now, you've got to know the context here. We don't always get the full context from just one Gospel account. So we look to the other Gospel accounts and we can put all the pieces together here. Multiple witnesses. And so in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark's Gospel, that there's an additional detail that's really helpful for us. And that detail is this, that as the criminals were on their way to Calvary with Jesus, they were both mocking Jesus. That this is not a situation where you have the good criminal and the bad criminal. Where from the onset as they're walking up, you've got one who believes in Jesus, one who doesn't believe in Jesus. Now the, the picture here biblically is along with the crowd and the soldiers and the rulers and so many onlookers, you had these two criminals who were justly deserving the penalty for their crimes on their way to the Calvary Hill and they are both mocking Jesus as they go. They're scoffing at Him. And yet, Luke tells us something radical happened to one of them somewhere between that point of mockery and when they got to the cross. Or while they were on the cross. In fact, verse 41 tells us that one of those criminals, he admits his guilt. He confesses that he's a sinner. And he says, I, I deserve this. He doesn't deserve this. I deserve this. He confesses that he's a sinner. And then verse 42, he confesses Jesus as Lord. He cries out to Jesus. He, he says Jesus is King. He says, Jesus, you're, you're going to reign in paradise. You're going to reign over a kingdom. And when you get there in your reign, in your rule, will you remember me? As I turn from my sin, and he's placing his trust, his hope in Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus offers him security in this new salvation. He says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. I mean, what, what's the difference there between these two criminals? Moments before, they're both mocking Jesus and scoffing at Jesus. And now we have one confessing his sin, confessing Christ as Lord, receiving full assurance that he will be in eternity with Jesus. Well, what happens? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They don't give us the details. But based on what the Scripture teaches, we know what happens here is that the Holy Spirit did something on this man. The Holy Spirit brought this man to an understanding, to a, to a depth of conviction over his sin through which he cried out and repented and placed his trust in Jesus. And while I don't know all the particulars, I can't help but think it probably came about the time that Jesus is turning to those women and to that crowd and He is saying, don't cry for Me, cry for yourselves because God's judgment is coming. 
And as these criminals who were carrying their crosses, guilty of a crime, deserving of a penalty, as they heard Jesus talking about a day of judgment coming when it would be so intense that you would literally be crying out for the mountains to fall on you and put you out of your misery, something happens in one of them where his heart is awakened to the reality and the truth of the wrath he deserves that goes far beyond crucifixion. And he turns and puts his trust and his hope in Jesus. I don't know about you, but I find it remarkable that on the way to the cross, Jesus is leading people to faith and repentance. Remarkable that that on His way to die for man's sin, He is still seeking to save the lost. But when you consider who Jesus is and what He says of Himself, it's not that remarkable. Because that's who He is. Jesus says of Himself in Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so as we consider this, that this was on the heart of Jesus as He's being led to the cross, that the salvation of those who are mocking Him and cursing Him, if that was important to Jesus on the way to the cross, then I think that should be important to us today in the church of Jesus Christ. But sadly, what we have seen in the church of Jesus Christ today is we talk very little about the wrath of God. There's almost a sense where we're ashamed of those passages in the Scripture that talk about the intense holiness and, and the burning wrath of God against sin. We've tried to soften the Gospel. Tried to make it easier for people. We've tried to convince them that, oh, that, that, that mean, angry God, no, that's, that's not who God is. My God, I believe, oh, He's just a God of love. He loves you so much. He just loves you. So loving. And the truth of the Scripture is, God, God is love. And God is just. And God does not set aside one attribute to display the other. God is able to do what you and I are not. He, he is perfectly just and perfectly righteous and perfectly loving all at the same time. <laughs> it's a glorious thing. In my house, I'm sure there are more nicknames than I know of, but I know of a few, and there's Grumpy Dad. I have a way of displaying different attitudes and actions based on how I feel, how I'm doing. You don't ask Grumpy Dad for dessert. You ask Dad on vacation for dessert. You ask Dad who's had a nap for dessert. Maybe it's like that for you. You display different things at different times and yet... What we can't comprehend what it is for, for our Holy Father in heaven. He's perfectly just and He's perfectly loved and He's perfectly forgiving and merciful and righteous all at the same time. And what we've done because we fail to grasp this is we've failed to let people know what Jesus was saying on the way to the cross that there is a real 
God who will rain real wrath down on real wickedness. And that judgment is coming. And if we have an ounce of mercy and compassion in our hearts, then we should be warning a lost and dying world of the wrath that is coming. I live just up the road here in Bloomfield in very close proximity to the park and just down from that, the firehouse. I assume it's right there in that area where the horns are. If you live around here, you know the horns. Six o'clock. They're a warning that they're testing them. They're, they're helping us to know, listen, when danger's on its way, we're going to sound this alarm. And if you hear this alarm and you get your watch and it's not 6 o'clock, then you need to be warned that something's coming. And if you've lived here for a while, you, you've experienced that. You've heard the horn sound. You've probably gone in and checked the weather. You, you've taken measures. And then, if those warns are indicating danger that's on its way, you take precautions. You, you try to shelter yourself from the danger because you heard the warning. It's coming. So you go for safety. I mean, who, when that happens, starts saying things like, well, how rude of you to warn me. I was taking my nap, I'll have you know. You woke me up. In fact, I had just fallen asleep in my favorite chair outside beside an enormous tree which likely then would have crushed me and I would have died. But who cares about that? You shouldn't have woke me up. How dare you warn me that a storm was coming. Now nobody says that. No, we, we hear the warning and we heed the call. problem is, friends, we're not shouting the warning we need to shout anymore. God has given this world horns. He has given this world an emergency warning system of a storm that's coming that's far more intense than any natural disaster that's ever been recorded in our history. It is the judgment of God on the wickedness of man. And He has given you and I the responsibility to sound the horns and to call out to the world. And if we have an ounce of mercy or compassion for our friend, co-workers, our loved ones, then we will sound off that call of God's judgment because friends the day is coming the word is true that when that day is here there's no longer an opportunity for us to call out and warn there will only be opportunity for the wicked to call out and cry out for God to bring mountains on them to crush them and there will be no mountain that can extinguish the wrath of a holy God but there is a mountain on which Jesus took God's wrath. And there's a mountain where the cross of Calvary was where Jesus died for our sin. And Jesus gives such a beautiful, gracious reminder here as He is on that mountain, on that cross, to this criminal 
who would believe in Him, who had confessed his sin and confessed Christ as Lord, as he gives them this, this wonderful word of security, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's a wonderful word for us today because it reminds us, friend, that as we walk through this world, through the wickedness of it, through the, through the suffering of it, as we experience day after day the effects of the fall and the loss of those we love and of sicknesses and cancers and awful things, we are reminded that if we are in Christ, one day we too will be with Him in paradise. And our heart's desire should be that others would be there too. And so, we're going to do a couple of things here. One, I have a very practical resource to put in your hands and then we're going to culminate this at the Lord's table together. If you'd look there in your worship guide when you came in today, uh, you should have received this little booklet. This little booklet is a, a wonderful resource and tool for us to warn people and to share with them the hope that they can find in Jesus Christ. It is written in such a way that with no training, no teaching, you, you can read through this and see very clearly and understand very clearly the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. You can share this with others. I want to ask you to do four things with this. The first thing I want to ask you to do is pray. Pray today. Pray right now in our service. Pray that God would put on your heart the names of people, the faces of people who don't know Christ. Maybe some people here with you today who don't know the Lord have yet to confess Christ as Lord. Pray for them. Pray that God would change their hearts. Pray that God would do what He did in the life of that criminal that had brought Him from that, that moment of mocking Christ to where He calls out to Christ. Pray that God would do that work in their life. That's the first thing. The second thing I would ask you to do is to simply give this to them. Just as a gift, as hey, if you don't mind, our church is giving these out. I want to give this to you. Then the third thing is to invite. Invite them just to read it and tell you what they think about it. I found no shortage of people in our culture who when I ask them to tell me what they think about something, who won't tell me what they think about something. <laughs> I guarantee you I could walk up to ten strangers on the street today. I could find out exactly what they think about politics, about sports, about weather, just by asking them. They'll tell you. So, so we're going to ask them to talk to us about something much more significant than those things. We're going to pray for them. We're going to give this to them. We're going to invite them. Hey, would you just read it? Tell me what you think about it. And then fourth, just follow up with them. Have a conversation about the Gospel. And invite them to come to church with you next week to hear the Gospel proclaimed here. And here's the wonderful thing. I found that so many people, there's two things that keep them from talking to people about the Gospel, from witnessing. The first one is a fear of rejection. A nervousness. The second one is a fear of, well, what if I don't know what to say? Well, this takes care of the second one. Everything you need to say is right here. So let me say something about the first one. One of your former pastors here, Dr. Tim Booker, is a professor at Southern Seminary, and he had the opportunity to preach at Seminary Chapel this week. And I didn't hear the whole message, but I saw part of it. And in it, Dr. Booker talked about this. Talked about, you know, why are we so nervous when we try to share the gospel? Summarize. He basically said because God's reminding of us, reminding us of our need to depend on Him when we're sharing the gospel. You shouldn't have confidence. You should be nervous. Eternity's at stake. But that nervousness then should lead you to depend on God 
and trust in Him because the Scripture says He's the one who does the work. You can plant, you can water. God's the one that brings growth. But the Word tells us very clearly, how will they hear unless somebody tells them? How will they hear unless we go and we preach the Gospel? God has ordained that you and I be the ones to tell people about the Gospel. Do you have enough compassion and mercy in your heart for the lost you know to give them a booklet? To ask them to read it? To follow up with them when they do? And to trust that God will do a work through that? That's the first thing. The second thing is this. We're going to come to the Lord's table together. Because the Lord's table is the reminder for us, not just of the events that took place on the cross. It's a reminder to us of what Jesus said to that criminal on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. It's a reminder for us to look ahead to, to when we are free from the sin and suffering and loss and weight of wickedness in this world and we too are with Christ in paradise. Just a couple of pages back there in Luke's Gospel, we read about the institution of the last meal, the Lord's Supper. Luke tells us this, and when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with Him, and He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I've longed to do this because this is the last time I'm going to have this meal with you until we're in paradise together. So we as a church, we, we take this often, but there's the day coming when we're going to take this with Jesus. In a new heaven and a new earth, you'll get more than a thimble of juice. <laughs> more than a little cracker. You'll, you'll have a feast at the Lord's table. So Jesus says he, He's wanted, He's longed to do this with the disciples. And then He said this, for I tell you, or excuse me, then He took a cup, and when He given thanks for it, He said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I'll not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So again, He's telling them to look forward. So He takes the bread, the Scripture tells us, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them saying, this is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. But behold, the hand of Him who betrays Me is with Me at the table. For the Son of Man goes it as it's been determined, but woe to the man by whom He is betrayed. Of course, He's speaking there of Judas. Who would be there at that table with Him. Again, we see the compassion of Christ. He's, he's there with the one who will betray Him and He's offering Him this meal. He's on the way to the cross, surrounded by those who are mocking Him. He's offering them the Gospel. It's a reminder for us today that None of us are so far gone that God can't save. And it's a reminder to us of what is to come.